You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. Rod Serling once said about the sport of boxing, what seems to give this idea the stature of tragedy is that the business of prize fighting never allows for an alternative preparation for another field of endeavour. To be a fighter, you have to live as a fighter. Everything you do, every action you take, every moment you live is a part of, and preparation for, the next fight on the schedule. And when your career is finished, the profession discards you. In terms of society, it discards a freak, a man able only to live by his fists and his instincts, and too often a battered hulk, covered with the unhealing scars that are the legacy of his trade. And Rod Sailing's relationship with the sport can be explored further in a series of articles and a book called The Twilight Rounds, written by a friend of the show, Christopher Benedict. But considering how perfectly that quote fits tonight's episode, this one isn't from the typewriter of Rod Serling. This one is from the typewriter of Richard Matheson. When we step into the ring for tonight's bout in the fifth dimension, you will be forgiven for thinking that we're meeting two men who are trying to dispose of a dead body as they wheel a humanoid shape wrapped from head to toe in fabric along the aisle of a city bus out into the street. But while they do get the occasional odd look, what's going on is of no real concern to the passers-by. And when they wheel the figure into a local cafe, nobody even raises an eyebrow. Because as we'll soon find out, the figure is that of a robot boxer who's been brought to town by the two gentlemen for a match. We'd be all right. If he don't get hit? Well, it's no use glaring to me. You know he's shot. That ain't true. Just needs a little work, that's all. Yeah, little three, four thousand dollar overhaul with parts he don't make anymore. Thanks. By the way, you talk, Paul. You'd think he was ready for the scrap heap. Ain't he? No, he ain't. There's plenty of fight left in Maxo. Two men, Kelly and Pole. One pushing for the best, and one certain of the worst. The situation is as tense as the ropes on a boxing ring, and they're one step away from ruin if battling Maxo, their robot fighter, doesn't beat the odds against a much more advanced opponent. So ladies and gentlemen, let me be your referee as you step into the ring in this small smoke-filled arena. But take my advice, make sure your trainer has his towel ready to throw into the ring, because tonight, your opponent is made of steel. Sports item, circa 1974. Battling Maxo B2 heavyweight accompanied by his manager and handler, arrives in Maynard, Kansas for a scheduled six-round bout. 
Battling Maxo is a robot, or to be exact, an android. Definition, an automaton resembling a human being. Only these automatons have been permitted in the ring since prize fighting was legally abolished in 1968. This is the story of that scheduled six-round bout. More specifically, the story of two men shortly to face that remorseless truth that no law can be passed which will abolish cruelty or desperate need, nor for that matter, blind animal courage. Location for the facing of said truth, a small smoke-filled arena just this side of the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on October 4th, 1963, written by Richard Matheson and directed by Don Weiss. So let's talk sailing intros here because in season four, I probably didn't talk about them as much as I used to because sailing being in the scene doing his intro just wasn't a thing in that season. So for anyone who has jumped on board the Twilight Zone podcast recently and may not have heard why, it's because in season four Rod Sailing was actually teaching elsewhere and was not around for the filming of the episodes as he was in seasons one to three. And also for the uninitiated, one of the things I love most about a good sailing intro is how integrated into the scene he is. Take for example, an episode like Little Girl Lost, where the camera slowly pans to Sailing's feet, walking into shot, or the episode back there where he's casually sitting in a wing-back chair in the same room as the characters. Those for me are the ultimate Sailing in the scene intros. But maybe a notch down from that is the famous Twilight Zone whip pan, the camera whipping across from where our main characters are to where sailing is. And this was generally done to hide the fact that sailing might not have been on the same set at the same time, or it was a completely different set just made up to look like the one that the main characters were on. Now I do actually believe that Sailing was on the same set tonight from things that I've read in our Twilight Zone reference guides, but I just don't think he was there at the same time as the characters, hence the whip pan. But I do think it's a good second best Sailing in the scene kind of open narration because he's sitting at a table in this cafe, he has a cup and a napkin, there's an ashtray with a cigarette butt in it, and here he is, this Twilight Zone entity. Is he a god? Is he a guide? Is he a judge? Is he the one nudging these things into happening? Or is he just there to observe and show us what's happening and teach us the lessons of what we're about to see? Tonight, I think it's the latter, but we'll see if you agree. But before we move on, I have to give a mention to the beautiful exterior shots that open this episode when Steele and Pole arrive in town on a bus because I'm a sucker for a nice looking American street. Even if it is a studio lot like this was, this was lot two at MGM and it does remind me of going to some of those great American theme parks like Disney MGM Studios or Universal Studios in Florida or California, of which I have wonderful memories, and the fabulous recreations of classic American movie streets that they do. It's just wonderful stuff. Our writer tonight is of course Richard Matheson, now I won't say too much about him because he's obviously been well represented in the show so far, but we are in for a treat, a Richard Matheson 
double bill. Because this episode maybe is one of the more under the radar Matheson episodes, but the next episode that we cover could be said it's his most famous Twilight Zone episode, but we'll get to that when we get there. So there are three more Matheson episodes to go before our time with him is done. But this story originated in one of those great American pulp magazines. Richard Matheson was the original writer and it first appeared in the May 1956 issue of the Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction and then subsequently in one of Matheson's collections called The Shores of Space. Now sometimes when an episode is based on a short story I will compare and contrast it quite a bit but it really depends on what that short story is like but in this case Matheson's adaption for the Twilight Zone is just very faithful and there are no real differences to get our teeth into. Our director tonight for one night only is Don Weiss. Now who knows whether he may have come back to the Twilight Zone had it went beyond season 5 but while he was new to the show he certainly brought a wealth of experience with him. He was born in Milwaukee in 1922 and Don was one of those people who set his sights on the business and really just put in the work to get there. After graduating from his film studies class at the University of Southern California, he got his first job as an errand boy at Warner Brothers and the skills from film school served him well when he saw service in World War II in the first motion picture unit of the US Army Air Corps making training films for soldiers. And when he returned from the war, he got right down back to business doing various types of assistant work on motion pictures until he got his own gig in 1951, directing a movie called Bannerline. And while he spent the first three years of his career directing pictures that didn't really set the world on fire, it was television where he really made his mark because when he switched to television from features in 1954, he truly became a hard-working director of the day, and the span of his career is staggering. Between the years of 1951 and 1990, he had 136 credits to his name. But remember when I say credits, I mean the titles of the television shows but within those credits are potentially multiple episodes of those shows. So for example, he directed 19 episodes of Schlitz Playhouse, two episodes of the Planet of the Apes TV series, I've always got to get that connection in, and a huge 57 episodes of the Raymond Bear series Ironside in the 1970s, 16 episodes of MASH, 22 episodes of Fantasy Island, and the list goes on and on, and... He was also very versatile too. He was just as much at home directing a cop show like Hill Street Blues as he was directing Kolchak the Night Stalker. And in his 10 year retirement before his passing in the year 2000 at the age of 78, he was president of the Motion Picture Permanent Charities Committee and served on the New Mexico Film Council. So he was a man of television and movies through and through. So it's maybe a shame that he only got to do one Twilight Zone, but let's see how he did. I don't get you, bro. After seven months, we finally get a bout, and all you can do is complain. Some bout. Maynard, Kansas, the price-fighting center of the nation. Well, it's a start, ain't it? 
But we earn here, we can put Maxwell back in shape. Huh, if he wins. <laughs> you know, I don't get you, Paul. He's our fighter. Now, why do you keep writing them off? I'm a class A mechanic, Steel, not a daydreaming kid. We got us a piece of dead eye in here. Somebody will hear you. Simple mechanics. Max will be lucky to get out of the ring with his head on. Wrong. It's a starter, B7, full of kinks, just full of them. Sure, sure. So within the language of the show, what they're trying to set up here, we we talk about model numbers a lot. And it's quite a simple way of keeping track of where Maxo is against the current robots of the day. So battling Maxo is a B2 model robot belonging to Steel and Pearl. And he's lined up for a bout against Maynard Flash who is a B7 model. Maxo is simply out of date and his opponent is five models ahead of him. And I just love the way that Steel won't accept that Maxo is outclassed by the B7. He keeps focusing on the fact that Maynard Flash is a starter B7, full of kinks, ignoring the fact that Flash is still several models ahead of Maxo. Steel Kelly just won't accept the fact that Maxo is out of date, past his prime, and obsolete. And it really doesn't take as long to realise that the story of battling Maxo is really the story of Steel Kelly. And a really good illustration of that is this speech by Steele to Mr. Maxwell, who is one of the organisers at the boxing arena. Maybe you heard about my fighter, Mr. Maxwell. Hmm? I, I say you heard of my fighter? Nope. Oh, he's almost the world's heavyweight champion once. I, I, I used to be a heavyweight myself. Uh, before the law was passed, of course. Yeah, I used to box under the name of uh, Steele Kelly. <laughs> Yeah, they kind of call me that because I never got knocked down. No, 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 not once. Well, going to be a great fight tonight, huh? Hey, you know my uh, boy here, he took Dimsy the Rock back in 71. You remember that? Nope. Well, it's all over the East Coast newspapers, you know, Boston, New York, Philly. Well, that's where we're from, Philly. I really love Lee Marvin's performance here. Look at how he switches into promoter mode when he starts talking to Nolan, telling him how great a shape his fighter is in. And to be fair, you could say that really he's the only person in the episode who actually cares about the sport of boxing. And in a moment he'll start to talk about past victories and almost victories. And this I think is very key to who Steele is, which I'll come back to when we sum this episode up. But let's take a moment to meet our leading man. In his second and last Twilight Zone, we once again meet Lee Marvin, this time playing Steele Kelly. So we would have spoke about him in the season three episode, The Grave, and I would hope that I did what I would normally do when we encounter a star of his stature and see where he was in his career at that point and how he got there. Now Marvin had been in movies before this, but he was primarily a television actor. But here, we find him on the cusp of moving more into movies. And it would only be a couple of years until he was playing such career-defining roles as Cat Baloo and Major Reisman in The Dirty Dozen. And Marvin did tend to be cast as a particular type of person because of how he looked. You know, he looked like a guy who was carved out of stone. 
so he is usually going to be the tough cowboy or the hard-boiled cop. But this, I think, is a perfect role for him, the ex-boxer. And he's completely believable as a person for whom boxing is all he knows. When he couldn't do it anymore, he had to find a way of staying in the business, because what else is he going to do? So I find him to be absolutely magnetic in this, and I can't take my eyes off him when he's on screen. So as we bid him farewell from the fifth dimension, we do so with gratitude that he's heading into the most successful period of his career. But sadly, while Lee Marvin is remembered for his great film roles, he's also remembered for his hard-drinking lifestyle. And he did keep on working up until the end of his life, but unfortunately, that lifestyle would catch up with him in 1987, when he died suddenly of a heart attack. In Stuart Stanyard's book Dimensions Behind the Twilight Zone, Richard Matheson says of Lee Marvin, Well, I spent the afternoon with Ralph Nelson and both Lee Marvin and Joe Mantell. We went through it, and Lee Marvin really impressed me because he was acting out the story, even though we were on an empty set. No set pieces, no lighting, no music, no nothing, and he was acting out the part as if it were really taking place. And it wasn't just that he had a brilliant ability to do this kind of acting, it was that he lost himself in the role. He became the person I wrote about. It couldn't have been done better. It's almost as if he'd read my brain when he read the script. It was all there. Yeah, Morley's coming out with a B9 this year. Yeah. I could trigger in both arms and legs, all steel aluminum, triple gyro, triple t twisted wiring. Say it'll be able to stand up after knockdowns, too. Was he okay? Sure, he's great. This doesn't blow. Well, why should it? It's subpar. I told you that eight months ago. Now we'll get another one out of the boat. Yeah, another 75 bucks down a drain. Look, he's earning us 500, ain't he? Perhaps my favourite scene in the episode is when Pole and Steel are getting Maxo ready for the fight, and we see the workings in the back of the robot, but I also think that the design of the robots is really nice too. The B2 battling Maxo is played by Tip McClaw, and he has the face of an older fighter who's taken too many punches, so he's got cauliflower ears and puffy eyes. Then later we'll meet the B7 main on Flash, played by Chuck Hicks, an altogether sturdier and more imposing figure, with clean square features, but both of them have these emotionless faces with dead black eyes. And Mark Zickery writes in the Twilight Zone Companion that these were the works of the great William Tuttle, who crafted foam latex masks to be glued to their faces, and used parts of ping pong balls for the eyes painted black with pinpricks at the center for the fighters to see through. But who were the men behind the eyes? So as I said, Battling Maxo was played by a gentleman called Tip McClaw and there wasn't a great deal of information out there about him but he was born in 1927 and from what I can see in his 33 credits, he was active between the years of 1955 and 1976. And while he was in some recognisable shows like Maverick and the Untouchables, he was playing a lot of small, often uncredited roles like Hood or Prisoner, 
and we actually find him here near the end of his career in terms of number of roles played, because he would only have three more credits after this one, and he died in 1995 at the age of 68. Maynard Flash, however, who we'll meet shortly, was played by a gentleman by the name of Chuck Hicks. Now, Hicks was also born in 1927, and in terms of resume, Chuck Hicks has probably one of the most impressive of any Twilight Zone actor, and he kind of has two credit lists, one as a stuntman and one as an actor. As a stunt performer, he was in films like Dirty Harry, Star Trek II, Lethal Weapon 4, and many, many more with a list of 109 credits. But his credited acting parts are even bigger. He has 200 of those, and they include parts in the 1966 Batman the Movie, Cool Hand Luke, Every Which Way But Loose, and he kept on working right up until 2010. Now if you look down the list of characters that he played, you'll often see them listed as thug, big man or henchman. So he was that kind of pure breed of Hollywood tough guy, doing the stunts to make the stars look good, but also playing these parts as a kind of stunt actor. He might be the guy in a bar who maybe has a couple of lines picking a fight with the leading man before getting thrown through a window. So he might not have been the one in the limelight, but he's great at what he does and he fills that most essential role in the whole process. And I really have to respect that. And we only lost Chuck Hicks last year at the age of 93. Ah, uh, what's he use? Come on, let's test some more. What for? It's just, just, just so like I say. What'd you do? Look, I told you not to mess with that lapse. So you broke it. If I broke it? Listen, you big duck. This heap's been going on borrowed time for the past three years now. Don't you talk to me about breakages. Open them up. Sure, sure. You just find another mechanic who could have kept the steam shovel going these last few years. You just find one. So with a broken robot that was never really up to the job anyway, what are they to do? Paul suggests borrowing money to get back home, but Steele won't hear of it. But why not? Richard Matheson said to Mark Zickery in The Twilight Zone Companion, I saw the Lee Marvin character as the sort of man who never liked to ask anyone for help, but chose, in the old-fashioned way, to take care of things for himself, however mad. To him, it was a straight-line progression, to get the money to put Maxo back in condition, he had to get that fee. Now. So he got it in the most obvious way he could as he saw things. He couldn't see Paul wiring for money. That would take time. Worse, it would be begging. The money might not come anyway. What if Paul's sister said no? What if the work in Philadelphia did not eventuate? Much too complex for Steele. Go in the ring and hang in there. Get the money and leave. Even when he got his brains beaten out, and only a small percentage of the money, he did not give up. Not the brightest man in the world, but in many ways, pretty admirable, pretty brave. So with Maxo out of commission, that is indeed the plan. Steele says that he will take the place of Maxo in the ring. 
Only those two guys in the office saw me. And if Nolan and Maxwell don't watch the bots, well, why should the crowd know? Steal! B2s bleed just like you know, the new ones and bruise and the whole thing. Look, I can wire my sister. She'll send us the dough to get back east. Steel, I know a guy in Philly wants to sell a B5 cheap. We can scurry up the cash with you. Steel, use your head, will you? It's a B7. You'll get mangled. I'm not gonna let you do it. I'm gonna... You're gonna help me. Or I'm gonna beat your brains out. Although Lee Marvin is great in this role, part of that is having someone great to play off against because his co-star is Joe Mantell. And like Lee Marvin, he's here for his second and last Twilight Zone. Now we first saw him in the season two episode, Nervous Man in a $4 Room. And he was great in that episode too with, with this dual performance of the two sides to his character. Here his role is a bit more straightforward, but like his role in Nervous Man, he's in a very comfortable place here, that kind of fast-talking street guy that he does so well. And from here on, Joe would just keep doing what he'd been doing. He was a jobbing actor, and he was happy to take movie or television parts. Not hugely prolific compared to some of his contemporaries, but he worked steadily, and he'd pop up in the likes of The Man From U.N.C.L.E., and Fantasy Island. And perhaps his most famous role is as Walsh playing opposite Jack Nicholson in the classic Chinatown. And Joe is the one to water the immortal line in the devastating climax. Forget it Jake, it's Chinatown. And while it might not have been as well received as Chinatown, Joe Mantel returned for the 1990 sequel, The Two Jakes. And then he left the silver screen for a well-earned retirement until his death at the age of 94 in 2010. Before we get to the finale, there is one piece of trivia to mention, and that is that this episode got a big screen treatment of sorts in the 2011 film Real Steel starring Hugh Jackman as Charlie Kenton, an ex-boxer very much in the Steel Kelly mold. Charlie, where is my money? Buddy, I got your money, it's right here. Oh, good. But Charlie, you're uh -huh. losing your belt. Wait, Charlie, hey. I can't hear what you're saying. What was he like as a boxer? Charlie was the top contender number two in the world. Then the fight game changed. With you. No, you're not. I'm either coming with you or you're fishing for your keys in the sewer. Oh my god, that was close. Don't. Whoa! Stubborn kid. This ain't a video game. This is for real. <laughs> Let's make some money! I just need a little loan. As much as I like you, dude, you're a bad bet, brother. Give it up, Charlie. You got nothing left. What are we looking for? Anything I could use to put a fighting robot together. I think there's a whole robot in there. Never seen anything like it before. 
Should we get him a fight? He's a sparring bot, built to take a lot of hits, but never dishing out any real punishment. His name is Adam. Get him a fight. So Real Steel is a perfectly entertaining but formulaic mainstream Hollywood flick. But in terms of its connection to the Matheson story, you have to wonder whether it is actually based on that story or whether there is just enough similarity that they thought it best to credit Matheson just in case. There is a character in it called Marvin and you wonder whether that could be a nod to Lee Marvin but overall there just isn't enough connective tissue there between steel and real steel that we need to concern ourselves with it too much. Ladies and gentlemen, the fifth contest of the evening, a six-round heavyweight bout featuring from Philadelphia, the B2, battling Mexico. <laughs> So you mean? <laughs> and his opponent, our own B7, the Maynard Flash. Now I'm not going to go through the fight beat by beat, but I do want to mention that once again I do think that Maynard Flash is a fearsome and imposing sight when we get into that ring. And were this episode to be done with another actor other than Lee Marvin, this conceit of him replacing the robot might seem a bit silly. But Marvin's distinctive face that looks like it's carved out of rock anyway is perfect for this setup. And Chuck Hicks, who played Maynard Flash, said, I knew Lee Marvin for a long time and he was a real man and a great guy. During the fight scenes while filming, we were both fighting the plastic that covered our faces. The eyes were getting fogged up and it was hard to see. I ended up hitting Lee a couple of times, but the tough marine that he was never complained. He always would say, Don't worry about it, Chuck. I know your problem. Yeah, he was a drinker, but a real great man underneath that plastic and skin. So while Steel Kelly battles valiantly, he just can't remain on his feet against the onslaught from the relentless, untiring robot. And eventually, he's knocked down, and Flash wins the fight. Mark Zickrey says in The Twilight Zone Companion, If there is a problem with Steel, it would have to lie in the area of the main character's motivation. Steel goes into the ring in order to get money to repair his robot, yet Paul pleads with him not to do it, explaining that there are safer, although more time-consuming methods of getting the necessary money. Rather than seeming an act of courage, on the face of it, Steel's actions seem to be the result of a near-suicidal bullheadedness. Now we do wonder if this is one of those reviews that if he were to revisit it, he would change it now with the benefit of years and life experience because for me, this is the point of Steel. Steel refers to the metal robots battling each other. Steel is Kelly's nickname. But really, Steel is about what is inside that man. The beauty of the episode is that while the robot angle adds an enticing hook for us science fiction fans to hold on to, 
the robots are really expendable. That's not what it's about. Take the robots away, and what we're left is that archetypal story of the old boxer who keeps battling away each night, even though his best days are well behind him, because it's all he knows. It's exactly what Rod Serling was talking about when I quoted him at the beginning of this episode. The person who puts so much into the sport that by the time he can't do it anymore, there's nothing else that he can do. This is about that love-hate relationship with that thing that you do, a thing that is getting gradually harder and harder to keep on doing. Part of you loves it because that's why you got into it in the first place, but part of you hates it because you just can't do it the way that you used to. But it's all that you know. What else are you going to do? It's an ode to those people for whom the world moves on, but they get left behind because they don't evolve with it. They're doing the best to stay in their game, to stay relevant, but like when Steel steps into the ring against the very thing that's replaced them, they just can't keep up. It is a simple story and it does seem like Matheson has just taken a well-worn tale of an over-the-hill boxer and put a couple of robots in it, and I think for that reason it does seem a little unsophisticated. But what raises it for me is our two leading men, especially the complete and utter conviction of Lee Marvin. And I'm always a sucker for the story of someone who is just struggling against the tide of change and trying to keep their head above water. So while it might be a bit of an under the radar episode, for me at least, it just about creeps into the top tier of the Twilight Zone for these reasons but only just about. At the end, Steel Kelly is left in a mess on the dressing room floor. But Rod Serling in his closing narration chooses not to focus on the folly of what he was trying to do. He focuses on humanity's ability to rise to the occasion, even against incredible odds, like fighting a robot that you've got no chance against. Because every now and then, that long shot pays off. And maybe, just maybe, if Kelly can get those parts to fix Maxo up, perhaps that payoff is coming in the next town along the road. Portrait of a losing side. Proof positive that you can't outpunch machinery. Proof also of something else. That no matter what the future brings, man's capacity to rise to the occasion will remain unaltered. His potential for tenacity and optimism continues as always to outfight, outpoint, and outlive any and all changes made by his society, for which three cheers and a unanimous decision rendered from the Twilight Zone. Now, if this is the point where you normally turn off after the main review, then you might want to stick around to hear what Rod Serling has got to say about what's coming up next, because it's not quite what you think it's going to be. But before we get to that, let's go over to our friends in the After Hours Club to see what they think of Steel because every month I put it to the members over there on patreon.com slash Podcast to see whether they think our episode is top tier Twilight Zone, mid tier Twilight Zone or bottom tier Twilight Zone. And there's a bit of a definite kind of leaning this one. 28% said they thought it was in the top tier. 
thought it was in the mid tier and 10% in the bottom tier. So heavily kind of in the mid tier followed up by top tier. Now I actually put the poll on Twitter as well to see what uh, the Twitter audience think. And 22% said it was in the top tier, 50% in the mid tier and 28% in the bottom tier. So again, still strong on the mid tier, but the Twitter crowd are leaning a bit more towards the bottom tier. So let's see what some of our friends in the After Hours Club have got to say about it. Our friend Uncommon NASA says, it's grown on me over the years, drags a bit, but the acting is solid, dead on mid tier. Jason Schwartz says, great teasy acting and a fun story, upper mid tier for me, but still mid tier. But who knows, after hearing Tom's podcast and I get some new oil paste, perhaps it will move into the top. Well, here's hoping. Jay Howard says, it's got Marvin that moves it up and a Matheson script. My good friend Brandon Shea says, this is an incredibly lacklustre episode, bottom tier filler. Why do you hate the Twilight Zone, Brandon? Um, friend of the show Killian says, man versus machine story in a John Henry-esque tale. Unlike the folk hero who outperformed a steam drill but died from his exertions, this sad sack owner of a broken down android prize fighter gets the tar beaten out of him. At least there's some realism there. The story feels pointless, but it's rescued by character interplay, with Lee Marvin and Joe Mantell doing some fine work, lower mid-tier. Jordan Pass says, I always enjoyed its tale in the vein of people trying to stay relevant in an ever-changing and confusing world. What or who was once great has faded, and what ultimately fades from these people is what they are hanging on to. I think Jordan has kind of crystallized in a couple of sentences there, really what I got out of that episode as well. So, a good comment there, Jordan. Harold Nomi says, upper mid-tier, just barely below top tier, several different ways to interpret the plot and motivations. Still let his pride overtake his rationality and it nearly ended them, but maybe some part of him didn't fit into this new world of boxing and wanted it to end. The shot near the end where he's lying on the ground and we cut to Maxo in a fighting stance just underscores this to me. Maxo in his pride, the man still lying on the ground, is the rational part that knows it was foolish. He has been literally and metaphorically beaten because he couldn't let go. Tim Stratford says, solid performances from Marvin and Mantell but the story left me unsatisfied. Matheson wants us to admire the tenacity of Steele but I'm left feeling bad for a man who can't move from a clearly hopeless situation. Mid-tier, not a slog to get through but I wouldn't go out of my way to watch again. Our friend Drewman says, I'm surprised to see this episode isn't being rated higher. It stands out to me as a favourite of the fifth season. I think that my dashed expectations are a big factor though. I knew they based the Hugh Jackman movie on it, which I never saw except the trailer, so I assumed it was just an episode about robots boxing. So when I discovered it was about determination, survival, etc., it was a really nice surprise. Had a similar experience with Nightmare at 20,000 feet. And finally, Jay Warmack says, I rated it bottom tier mostly because I kept waiting for the twist, where the real Maxo robot would put the switcheroo and actually go into the ring instead of the manager. This twist would have played on the robot with emotions theme, which we have seen before. I suspect I've been overly influenced by this theme in many other movies, so I was looking for it but didn't get it. Probably middle tier is where it should be, 
but I was disappointed not to have the robot save the day and protect the promoter from going in the ring. Okay, thank you everyone over at the After Hours Club for chiming in on that one. So, speaking of the After Hours Club, welcome to the new members over there. Wallstrick, who joined the board of directors, thank you. And also Ben Hogg as well, thank you so much for becoming a member over at the After Hours Club. So, before we finish up, we have friend of the show Dave with some thoughts on our last episode in praise of Pip. Happy New Year, Tom. This is once again Dave from Germany with my thoughts on in praise of Pip. I didn't vote, so um, let me just say right here, I think it's top tier. Much of what I thought that I thought I might bring up, um, you had already beaten me to the punch. But uh, there's a couple of things that I'd like to maybe just mention. Life is the greatest gift a parent can give. And maybe, in a way, Max Phillips did it twice. We are both, and I presume most people are in agreement about this, in agreement that it's rather ambiguous whether or not Pip is really there or whether he's just a hallucination. And I had another thought about this. How do we know that Max wasn't already dead by the time he entered the theme park? You'd think that Pip would have a different reaction to the theme park if that was where his father died. I was kind of reminded of The Hunt and a certain fan theory about that one, about whether or not Old Man Simpson's whole ordeal was just a secret test of character. And I wonder if it may even be a similar situation with Max Phillips and what would appear to be Pip. There's another thing that just um, floated around in my head. I think the last time we saw a carnival on the show... I might be wrong about this, I might be totally wrong about this, was all the way back in season one in Perchance to Dream, which was, which is quite a stark contrast with its hectic, dark, nightmarish portrayal. And here we have not something out of a nightmare, but more out of a dream or a hallucination or something. And I just kind of find it fascinating how different both are to one another. Now about this possibly being the best first episode of all se five seasons. I mean, I haven't seen In His Image in a couple of years now, but I think it's safe to say that this might really be, in my opinion, the best season opener of the original run. But I don't think that Where Is Everybody and especially Two are that far behind. Serling's narration is among the best he has ever done. It was so touching, so eloquent, without losing a certain emotional punch and directness. I nearly forgot to mention this, but I really have to say this. Kluckman's performance in this episode was once again absolutely exceptional. And, of course, Bill Moomy once again did a great job as well. Anyway, I'm looking forward to your thoughts on 
still once again i'll be i think i'll be recording my thoughts on that one and sending them to you i wish you good health and smooth sailing throughout season five rod serling creator of the twilight zone will tell you about next week's story after this message if you want to get your thoughts onto the show then email a clip of about five minutes or less to tom at the twilightzonepodcast.com about any season five episode that we've covered so far or the one that's coming up next but what's coming up next isn't quite what you think so let's go over to rod sailing to find out what is and now mr serling next week on the twilight zone podcast tom elliott speaks to mark silverman who does a lot of different voices and impressions and does the rod serling voice on the twilight zone tower of terror at walt disney world we'll see you then